HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Julia Tertian, host of Radio Cherry Bomb. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza. It's a rainy day here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you have tuned in to the Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and I'm super excited to welcome back a regular guest of the Farm Report and longtime Heritage Radio Network supporter, Will. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me today. So for, for listeners who have not been lucky enough to hear from Will Harris in one of our past episodes, just a quick primer. He runs White Oak Pastures down in Bluffton, Georgia. It's a fifth-generation farm. They raise cattle, hogs, poultry, laying hens, vegetables, and they have the unique distinction of being the only farm in the country with both a red and white meat abattoir, um, both actually zero-waste facilities, which I just learned uh, doing research for this show. And today we're going to be chatting with Will um, about the synergies of a multi-species production system. And I'm really excited to hear from you, Will, a little bit about um, kind of the way all the different aspects of things that you have going on the farm are, are working together. And I'm wondering if you have a suggestion about, you know, where is best to start? Because I think when you're looking at a circle, it's a little like there's not a really starting and ending point, but for the discussion, we'll need to begin somewhere. Good. Well, I guess the best place to start is at the beginning, and that's when my great-grandfather came to our farm uh, 150 years ago. And at that time, he would have raised a uh, lot of different species of animals as well as vegetables. He would have processed them on the farm and uh, consumed them on the farm and marketed them locally. And that's the way the farm ran for about 80 years until the World War II, post-World War II, uh, what was ironically called the Green Revolution, 
and that's when uh, we in America uh, changed agriculture. We uh, and, and those changes were industrialization, commoditization, and centralization. It was the birth of the factory farm. And a lot of changes took place, but we'll focus on the fact that farms went from uh, fairly complicated uh, production systems of many different species of plants and animals to a factory model where it was a, a monoculture of just one species. Pig farms raised pigs, chicken farms raised chickens, cattle farms raised cattle, etc. And that was made possible by the tools that science gave us post-World War II. Things like uh, pesticides, chemical fertilizer, uh, antibiotics, uh, and the other tools, uh, later hormone implants, uh, uh, made the monoculture possible. You know, in, in nature... You have many different species living in symbiotic relationships with each other. And we kind of short-circuited that when we uh, industrialized and made factory farms. So we, on White Oak Pastures, we gave up the tools, kind of one at the time. But the most, uh, I guess the most important change that we made was bringing in other species. We were exclusively a cattle farm for, uh, I guess, about 50 years. And uh, we now pasture-raise five different red meat species. Cows for beef, hogs for pork, sheep for lamb, uh, goats, and rabbits. And we hand butcher them on the farm, as you mentioned, in our USDA-inspected red meat abattoir. And we pasture-raise five different poultry species, uh, chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, and ducks, and then butcher them in our poultry facility. So um, we also raise pastured eggs, certified organic vegetables, and have a number of other uh, ancillary businesses uh, that would never stand on their own except they're part of the organism that we call white oak pastures. We we make soap, we make biodiesel, we tan hides, we can vegetables. We have an on-farm restaurant, and we uh, we have on-farm lodging, and I hope you all will come to see us. That's an invitation. <laughs> an invitation that I need to take you up on in the new year. I'm definitely looking at my calendar for that. Um, so one of the things you just said, I... I I think it's so interesting you know, that you have these other kind of auxiliary businesses that wouldn't maybe make it as a standalone business, but because they're part of this a larger system that they make sense. And one of the things I feel like you often hear about in the, the story of agriculture, in particular the story of like family farms, is that as family farms grew and moved towards um, – a higher production volume system that things that used to be uh, solutions uh, then became problems. So whereas there was kind of a space and a use for all of the waste products of the animals, both while they were alive, but then also in their death, when you, when you have a single species farm or when you have a more kind of discrete system, something that used to have a value and a place suddenly becomes a waste issue to be dealt with. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that. 
Yeah, that's a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, one of my heroes is Dr. George Washington Carver, and he said many great things, but my favorite quote is something to the effect that in nature there is no waste. And that's exactly right. If you think about it, we created waste. Uh, there was no waste. Uh, you know, everything was regenerative, naturally regenerative, naturally recycled, uh, naturally consumed. Uh, but we 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 uh, created that problem. We mostly we uh, European Americans created the problem. Uh, and we endeavor to operate as a zero waste facility. You know, we uh, we market as much of the animal as we can. The, the part that's not marketed uh, is uh, used as feed for black soldier flies, which are fed to the chickens as larvae. Uh, what's not uh, dealt with in that way is composted and used to feed the microbes in the soil that feed the grass. To feed the animals that feed us. Uh, we tan hides. We feed uh, uh, you know, our egg operation, the cracked eggs, go to the hogs. Uh, you know, we eat as much fresh, eat and sell as much fresh vegetables as we can. What's excess or imperfect is canned or jellied or otherwise dealt with. I think I, I, I think I said this. We take the excess fat from the animals and make biodiesel to run our tractors and that spins off glycerin and we make candles and soap and I uh, just started selling the soap at Whole Foods markets so I could go on and on but uh, <laughs> uh, you know looking for higher and better uses of all that we produce you know manure uh, is something we produce and it has value so we look for ways to to uh, extract the value from all that we produce. Um, well, you know, it's interesting thinking about all these different areas. And I want to really point out for our listeners that we're not talking about, you know, uh, a, a small production farm. I mean, your team employs, I think, uh, 100 people from the community. I mean, it's quite an operation. Um, so I want to, like, talk a little bit when, about kind of the economies of, of scale and, and where... Uh, you know, to me, I like I can wrap my head around like a, a family farm and like a one or two family kind of space where you're able to like make use of all these things. But what you've done, and I feel like is so unique in this country, is you're producing you know a, a pretty robust volume of stuff. So, can you talk a little bit about that kind of scaling up process? Like, what is is there like a size barrier to a system like yours? Are you approaching it? Are you are you you know in the sweet spot? Like, what? How do we think about scale in an operation that's as diverse as yours? Well, in in any business, the determining the scale that you're going to operate on is an essential part of being either successful or, or, or not being successful. Uh, when I was uh, uh, operated a monocultural factory farm uh, from post war, my father post World War II, and I took over in the in the mid nineties. And uh, during the during the nineties, we were selling about a half a million dollars worth of live cattle a year. I had three employees and all pretty much minimum wage employees. Uh, Today, 
uh, instead of a half million dollars, we're selling between 25 and $30 million worth of product. Instead of three minimum wage employees, we've got 117 employees, all of whom make more than minimum wage. And, and uh, you know, we think we got quality jobs. We're the largest privately owned employer in this county. Uh, so yeah, I think that the economic impact of what we've been able to do is good, very good. Uh, yeah, when we industri- again, industrialized, commoditized, centralized, uh, it was done on purpose for reason, and it was wildly successful for those reasons. It made food cheap and abundant and safe from the perspective that you don't eat it and get an acute illness. And it just really did a great job of that. And I'm I'm glad because I don't want people going to bed hungry. But there were negative unintended consequences. And those unintended negative consequences fell on uh, animal welfare, environmental sustainability, and on the economy of rural America. And uh, I think that our land, our animals, and our community and our employees are faring much better under the system in which we farm our our land now as opposed to what I used to do. So for folks who who are out there uh, listening and and thinking about, um, you know, starting their own operation, obviously what you're doing is is not a turnkey situation. Um, So in the scope of of getting started, in in the scope of beginning at a beginning for someone who is new. Um, do you have any kind of spaces that you, you, you direct people towards or any starting points that like make more sense? Or what are the factors that kind of should help folks make some of those initial decisions when they're just beginning an operation? Well, I think that uh, I don't think you're going to... Uh, I, mean, I graduated from the University of Georgia with a degree in agriculture, and I'm a great advocate of the ag college land-grant system. But I don't think that many people are going to get what they need to start farming the way I farm uh, at the land-grant systems. It's great to go and major in agriculture, but that's not going to be all it takes. You know, you go to college, then you go to medical school or law school. You go to college, then you come to a farm that is farming the way you believe uh, that, that philosophically matches what you think is right. And you work there for a while, and then actually you go and visit there. And that's why we build cabins. We build lodging on the farm because we have a lot of people that come to the farm to to look and see. And if you do that and look and see and like what you see, then you can go to work on our farm as an apprentice. And I highly recommend it if, if that's uh, what your career path, if your career path will take you to farming. Uh, so I, I, I think that uh, I think that's that's almost uh, the road to get to managing your own sustainable, humane produce farm. Yes, find someone to learn from. I think that makes a lot of sense. Well, I'm going to ask you to hang tight for just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to the Farm Report, and we'll be right back. <laughs>
following program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hello, this is Mark Ladner from Del Posto, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network. All right, we are back, and if you've just tuned in, we're on the line with Will Harris of White Oak Pasture. We are talking about the synergies of a multi-species production system, which sounds very um, technical and not smiling cow on a boxy. And, and what I want to use kind of like the rest of our time with you, Will, to talk about is a little bit about this uh, uh, idea of language and um, how, as consumers, we need to be thinking a little bit more clearly about the realities of food production. And I, I think there's a lot of things that, as consumers, we're kind of prompted to put things in a box that's like either negative or positive. And, uh, you know, we talked a little bit at the, in the first half of the show about size. You know, you said you're a $25 million a year operation. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about why is it that people think kind of big is bad? And is $25 million big? I mean, where do you sit in the scope of ag? Oh, uh, wow. That's a, that's, that's a hard question. Uh, I would say that... Uh, that the determining uh, factor for scale uh, on an operation like ours is how much land is available to you. The next limiting factor is how much labor is available to you. The next limiting factor is how much processing capacity is available to you. The next limiting factor is how big is the market that's available to you. So those are the... uh, uh, the staves in the barrel that have got to be all brought up together to to grow your business to as as large a business as it can grow. So uh, if you compared, I mean, we we farm about twenty five hundred acres of land, and uh, that is a fairly large farm for Georgia. It would be huge for New Hampshire, and it would be a backyard in Wyoming. So uh, it's, it's, it's very, uh, uh, you know, where we fall in the great scheme of things is uh, as a food company, we're tiny compared to Tyson, uh, uh, Cargill, uh, National Beef, uh, and where they, uh, JBS, they spill more than we produce. Uh, compared to other organic farms, we're probably a, one of the larger ones. Yeah, so I think like what you're highlighting for us here is is this really interesting that 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 there's uh, the, the landscape of I think farming in, in the U.S. looks really different uh, depending on where you are, and there is kind of uh, a size and a fit 
um, for your region, which I think also ties back to just kind of the realities of what um, what you're limited by as a food producer. One of the other words that I feel like gets tossed around in conversation a lot is a vertical integration. And, you know, people point to some of those companies like you, you mentioned there um, in, in your explanation. And they say, oh, well, vertical integration is bad. One company owning all facets of a production system is a negative and or dangerous space. But then we look to the work that you're doing there at White Oak Pastures and and I, you know, I think there's like some dissonance there. So how do we kind of understand um, when we're looking at an operation like yours that not only is pulling from all of these different um, species, but you're also all of these different industries are located right on your farm and owned by one business. How do we understand like the positive and the negatives and, and where that gets kind of dangerous and we move away from sustainability and animal welfare and where uh, we could maybe possibly be moving, you know, in the direction of improved standards of um, animal welfare and sustainability. Okay, uh, you ask great questions, uh, and I can see how consumers would be confused. Let me see if I can help with that. Uh, first of all, you know, keep in mind that I said that the three uh, major changes we made post World War II was uh, industrialization. That's moving from a polyculture to a monoculture, the family, the uh, factory farm. Uh, so set that to the side. Uh, another ill was centralization. That is hauling cattle from 50 states to finish them in a fairly uh, small area of the country uh, uh, where they're mixed with other people's cattle. Uh, it was centralization. And uh, uh, and then the the, uh, the the last one was commoditization, which is a function of centralization. That's where farmers no longer strive to make their product the best it can be; they strive to meet the minimum standards. That's commoditization. So vertical integration that you brought up is thought about as being a problem by some people. It actually is necessary. Uh, vertical integration allows uh, a farmer to not just raise cattle or vegetables, they raise white oak pastures beef or uh, white oak pastures uh, tomatoes. Uh, it's, uh, you're able to, the farmer is able to put as much value as he possibly can into the product and extract that value from the marketplace because it's a branded product that's vertically integrated as opposed to what's done by large multinational food companies, which is go into the commodity market, buy whatever you can buy that met the minimum standards, and then put that in a branded product. So it's, it's two completely different uh, approaches, but vertical integration is necessary for a farmer to be able to put value into the product and then extract it back out. That was a very complicated answer, but can you could you follow that? Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, I think ultimately what we're talking about is is control. And then, you know, what are the criteria you're using to measure your success? So I think you really hit the nail on the head. Now, obviously, I want to – we're just about out of time. I want to end on a, a – a lighter note, you know, we're coming into the holiday season. 
um, when you and your family look across your, you know, 10 species to, to make choices to set your Thanksgiving table or your, or your Christmas table, or your holiday tables, um, you know, what jumps out to you guys? I mean, in the midst of such an embarrassment of riches, I think, you know, you can kind of really like pick, pick something delightful and exciting. You know, what would you kind of recommend to folks who are thinking about their, their holiday cooking? Well, one of the things that we're really proud of that, that is seasonal and right now is our turkeys are uh, American Standard Bronze. They're animal welfare approved. They are uh, certified humane. And they are Step 5 approved by the Global Animal Partnership, which is the highest level they have. Uh, I believe it's the only turkeys in the country that have all three of those uh, uh, quality approvals. They're completely pastured. They can fly up and roost in the trees. Uh, people really love them, and I do too. Uh, you can order them from our website, which is whiteoakpastures.com. Uh, uh, and, and we ship them all over the country. Uh, but I hope you'll have a look at our turkeys. We also have uh, pasture-raised geese and ducks, which are seasonal. And, you know, the freight becomes very affordable if you put other things in the box. We've got a lot to choose from. So you can really bring the price of the, of the uh, freight down by filling up the box. Hope you'll look at that. Yeah, stock up for the holiday season. I can think of, like, kind of nothing more delightful than facing that tough choice of which delicious kind of roast or bird I want to make over the course of the winter. Will, thank you so much again for joining us and, and for your continued support of the network. It's been really great chatting with you today. Thank you for what y'all do. Appreciate you having me on the show. Folks, once again, if you want to check out Will and his work, definitely give them a buzz. It's www.whiteoakpastures.com. You've been listening to another episode of The Farm Report. This show, like all 39 of our weekly programs, is available for free. You can find us on iTunes or Stitcher Smart Radio. But I hope you'll visit the website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. If you believe in our work, I hope you'll click that Donate tab and become a member today. Thank you so much for listening, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>